Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast. Richard Lane here with you on Friday, August the 20th. In a moment, we'll be discussing the potential of rotavirus vaccination in less developed settings. But just before that, let's cross straight away to Pakistan, where today, August the 20th, we publish online a comment by Professor Zolfi Bhutta from the Aga Khan University in Pakistan concerning the disastrous situation in that country as a result of appalling recent floods. Professor Bhutta, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet at this very tortured and difficult time for your country. Can you first of all tell me whereabouts in Pakistan you're speaking to me from? Well, today I'm speaking to you from Karachi, which is the southernmost port of Pakistan, which is also the largest city of the Sindh province, which is presently facing the brunt of the flood disaster. Professor Bhutta, it's impossible to talk about this flood disaster in your country without getting political and talking about issues both within Pakistan and externally with the rest of the world and what's going on there. And we will come to that. But could we just focus immediately on the current short term and medium term health and public health issues that are going to arise from this disaster? And perhaps you could just for context remind us of the effect in terms of numbers of people who have been dead and people who have been displaced, and then go on and tell us about the the health implications that you're facing. This is the single largest disaster in the history of my my country, and uh, insofar as the history of the region goes for the last 100 years. Um, The scale, the magnitude uh, of this is unknown. Uh, In the last two weeks or so since this disaster started with the torrential rainfalls in in the north of the country, close to 20 million people have been displaced, have been affected in one way. Of those, 7 to 8 million people have been displaced out of their households in communities. We estimate this morning that close to around 750,000 households have been destroyed. Virtually the entire infrastructure of the north in terms of bridges and uh, all the construction around the riverbanks is gone. The death rate so far has been fortunately low in comparison, but still we've lost close to around 1,800 people as a direct consequence of the floods. Many of us believe that the problem is just beginning. I mean, the waters are still rising in Sindh as we speak, and uh, the, the last tide will not be done for another three days. But even as the waters start to recede by the end of this month, we anticipate that the consequences, particularly the health and nutrition consequences of this disaster, will be enormous. Indeed. And and do go on and tell us what you think they will be. I mean, with all that water around, obviously, waterborne infections must be the number one concern. Well, absolutely. The immediate threat is from uh, the loss of water and sanitation and the risk of diarrheal diseases. And amongst the diarrheal diseases, you may have read and heard about the real serious concern about outbreak of cholera. Cholera is endemic in Pakistan. We tend to see roughly about 5-10%, depending upon where you are, of all severe acute watery diarrhea related to this organism. Typically, it does not lead to outbreaks because, in general, these are contained. Um, but small outbreaks have been noted in the past. So therefore, this is a, a an absolute ripe situation for a major outbreak of not just cholera, but also other types of diarrheal diseases like dysentery, etc. I know that measures are being taken at this point in time to ensure that we have safe water sanitation provided to most of the displaced people. But the scale and magnitude of this uh, of this disaster And the mere fact that we've now got population pockets with 400,000, 500,000 people clustered in camps 
means that it has to be a massive operation, which includes all elements of uh, diarrheal disease prevention from water sanitation, hygiene, good food, recognition of cases, surveillance, and possibly also vaccination strategies. But in addition to the immediate outbreak of waterborne diseases, remember that these people have been disrupted from where they were. The health system's gone. All the basic primary health care facilities are gone. Pakistan does not have the best indicators for maternal child health and nutrition um, globally. So therefore, you can well imagine how many of the underlying disorders are uncovered in such a circumstance. So all the regular issues that relate to child illnesses that lead to child deaths, newborn illnesses, pneumonia, skin infections, respiratory infections, problems of, of childbirth and associated complications, all of these will be significantly compounded by the flood in its aftermath. And in terms of what needs to be done in health and medical terms, and we'll, we'll talk about the politics and the, and the global response, the inadequate response so far in a moment. In health terms, what needs to be done? What health policies if any, can actually be implemented now, given that, as you say, the health system has actually disappeared in, in the worst affected areas? That's a great question. And, and I can give you a, a couple of salient points in this. The first and foremost need is to get food and water to people. I mean, as of yesterday, the World Food Programme had been able to reach about a million people. But you can imagine that's a million out of six or eight million who have been spent, you know, displaced substantially. So there's still a long way to go to ensure that people are fed and provided clean water. In terms of other health needs, what is immediately needed is some kind of a reestablishment of infrastructure and a primary care program, which would have a phase one, which operates while people are displaced and provides basic preventive curative services, such as immunization, such as rapid recognition and treatment for infections, uh, instructions and provision of commodities for safe water and sanitation, Treatment of the elderly, a substantial proportion of these displaced populations are the elderly people, people with chronic diseases who have had to leave without their medications, without anything. So a primary care structure needs to be set with initially mobile teams and then a response which is reasonably agile through camps until the time that the government's own infrastructure gets reestablished. And some of the civic society groups uh, academia, universities such as mine are initiating that process at scale so that we can redress some of the situation. And there must obviously be a role for the aid charities, the overseas aid charities, to come in and assist with this rebuilding. Well, the UN agencies and the aid charities uh, are beginning to come in. So there, there are not very many aid charities in Pakistan. For example, Medicine Sans Frontier does not have a huge presence. But I, I believe that people are now beginning to trickle in our hope would be that they would work in a very coordinated, concerted manner uh, with both national organizations, national bodies, as well as UN agencies in ensuring that all areas are covered. Most importantly, Richard, I think it's, uh, it's worth stating that this flood has affected the poorest of the poor. It's the people living around the riverbanks in the Kacha areas, the, the agrarian farmers. And, and therefore, this particular section of the population has typically also not received the best of care. It's extremely important that all aid, humanitarian, and health-related activities specifically target the poorest of the poor and ensure that services be provided to where they're clustered. And also, as they start to move back, 
that we don't forget about them and only keep activities in the major urban towns and centres. And finally, Professor Bhutto, your thoughts about the response, the response within Pakistan, the government response. There's been a lot of criticism about the Prime Minister being very slow to visit the flood areas. In a UK newspaper today, there's mention of the former Pakistan cricketer Imran Khan setting up his own appeal. And in terms of the overseas support, well, much criticism that response has been far too slow and that we're nowhere near getting the $500 million that are required just to deal with the first 90 days of the aftermath. Well, actually, the estimates of what might be needed in the not long term, but in the intermediate term, runs into billions of dollars. So Pakistan's needs at the moment are acute and huge. There is no question that there has been tardiness in terms of the government's own responsiveness, uh, its presence at very key moments in time within Pakistan, providing the leadership. But there is also no doubt that global response has been not only slow, it has been pitifully meager. If you look at how long it took to just get a third to a half of what the UN Secretary General had called for, it is remarkable how even the so-called friends of Pakistan have been extremely slow providing support and cash and kind to Pakistan. The civic society in Pakistan, however, is now beginning to raise its effort and scale things up. And the slowness of response that we saw initially also to a large extent was because of the lack of effective leadership. I would say, given the huge disaster that we have had, the the enormous needs that are ahead, that it's important to look forward. And irrespective of what's happened in the last two weeks, rather than criticize people, we need to put things in place to ensure that we have a steady stream of public support for the poorest of the poor who have no political stakes in anything. These are people who are the salt of the earth. They are poor farmers, villagers, rural people who have been uprooted and have had their lives destroyed in one go. They need everybody's support. And this is a real trust of global camaraderie and humanity, as I say, in terms of coming to the needs of those who have nothing. And do you think Pakistan can do that? Pakistan can do that. I think the world can do that, Richard. I mean, I I have every confidence. I mean, I travel all over the world. I know people. I know that people feel inside of them the the empathy and, and the sympathy with the people of Pakistan. It's now important for all of that goodwill to translate into some tangible actions. And remember that aid and, and support for Pakistan doesn't necessarily have to come through only one channel. People can engage in providing support through both cash and kind and in supporting many of the organizations in Pakistan. They are working at a grassroots level many of the NGOs and other organizations that are working towards redressing the situation. Professor Zulfi Bhutta, I must let you go because I know you have some important meetings and to do with fundraising and, and other aspects of this relief effort. But uh, it's been a, a privilege to speak to you at this very difficult time. Many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. Thank you, Richard. Thank you for sparing the time. And a reminder that Professor Bhutta's comment is published online today, August the 20th, and will be in a future print issue. In the print issue this week are two important research articles concerning the potential of rotavirus vaccination. Rotavirus is a major cause of diarrheal disease and death in less developed settings. Earlier, I spoke to the author of a linked comment to the two research articles, Professor Tony Nelson, who is a paediatrician at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Professor Nelson, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. 
You're the author of a comment in this week's issue of The Lancet, published online a week or so ago, reviewing and commenting on two important studies concerning rotavirus vaccination in Africa and also in Asia. Before I ask you to comment on those studies, just for context, can you just remind us about the biology of rotavirus, its prevalence and its mode of action, and and how common it is worldwide? Thank you, Richard. Uh, Rotavirus, in fact, was first uh, identified by a group in Australia way back in '73. And it's uh, the most common cause of uh, diarrhea in young children. And and I guess that's one of the main points. It really affects children under the age of five. And virtually every child globally will get rotavirus. About uh, 1 in 50 uh, overall will be hospitalized. And the estimates are somewhere around about 1 in 200 will die from the disease. So the latest estimates from WHO are about sort of 500,000 children die each year from, from rotavirus. And whereabouts in the world do children die from rotavirus? Is it exclusively in less developed settings or can it occur in sort of middle and higher income countries as well? Very occasionally deaths will occur in, in rich countries. So data from the US or Australia will report some uh, rotavirus deaths. But for the most part, where good healthcare systems exist, children can get access to rehydration and uh, death from rotavirus is very uncommon. About 85% of mortality is in the poorer developing countries in Asia and Africa. Do tell us a bit about the history of rotavirus vaccination because a few years ago we promoted the Lancet Paper of the Year and it actually was a rotavirus vaccine paper looking at efficacy uh, of the vaccine but that was in um, middle and higher income settings, is that right? That's right, mainly uh, higher and and middle income settings. Uh, Those two papers, uh, in fact, were two of the largest vaccine studies ever ever conducted and the, the reason why those studies were so large was because they needed to show that these new vaccines weren't linked to a problem of interception, which is a obstruction of the, the intestine. And the first vaccine, Rotashield, uh, which had been uh, licensed back in 1998 and was used in the U.S. Uh, for, I think, just under a year, uh, was shown to have this association with this, uh, this bowel obstruction, a risk of about 1 in 10,000. And it was based on that uh, that risk that the first vaccine was withdrawn from the market and then obviously subsequent vaccines had to go through very vigorous testing to to show that the same problem didn't occur and that uh, they would be safe to use. And so those two papers in The Lancet were the first studies to really show that these new vaccines uh, didn't have the same problem. The big question arising from those studies that you just mentioned were, well, can this can efficacy be shown in poorer parts of the world, which is where we are today, looking at the results of of these studies done done in Africa and Asia. Do you want to just comment on those two studies? The key thing that sort of WHO sort of highlighted sort of uh, back in sort of 2007 was that because these studies have been mainly done in Europe and uh, um, uh, Latin American settings, that they felt that they needed data from Asia and Africa before they could make uh, a universal recommendation. Sort of based on that WHO uh, sort of call for data, particularly from the poorest countries, these studies were, were launched uh, and they were really a sort of public-private partnership between what was known as the Rotavirus uh, Vaccine Program at uh, PATH, uh, which in turn was a sort of collaboration between uh, uh, WHO, the CDC in, in the US, with uh, funding support from the Gavi uh, Alliance and with uh, the industrial manufacturers of the vaccines. And 
these led to studies uh, being done, uh, as you say, in both Asia and Africa in some of the poorest countries. The vaccine question here, this is, has been developed by, by Merck, and it's a live oral vaccine, isn't it? That's correct, yeah. It comes in a sort of liquid format, and it's a sort of it's a, what they call a sort of reassortant vaccine. So rotavirus contains sort of different strains, but like influenza, where you, influenza you get the H and the N, uh, with rota you get what are called G and P types, and there's uh, a number of these different strains which are circulating. The different rotavirus vaccines have different combinations of these G and P, but the vaccines will also protect against um, other, other G and P types. So, so yeah, so it's the, the one produced by Merck that's been uh, published in these two papers. And comment now briefly just on the results from these two papers. Partial efficacy, I guess, is, is the main message. Is that right? These vaccines, when tested in the sort of the rich, uh, high-income countries, were very efficacious, very high rates of efficacy, sort of over sort of 95%, whereas in these poor developing countries, the efficacy is low in the region of 50% in the Asian countries over a two-year period to about 40% in the, the African countries. To some extent, this wasn't surprising, and this was one of the reasons WHO wanted these studies done in poorer countries, because other oral vaccines have tended to show lower efficacies in situations where you have poverty, malnutrition, other co-infections, and so on. On the one hand, it uh, looks significantly lower than what you get in, in, in rich countries. The best way I've heard it sort of described is like a sort of glass full versus a glass half full because the sort of disease burden in these poor developing countries is so much greater even though the efficacy is maybe only half of what it is in the richest countries you can prevent relatively more disease in, in the poorer countries for example the other uh, vaccine which was tested was the gsk vaccine uh, in South Africa and Malawi, and, and they showed that in South Africa the efficacy was higher, but the number of cases of severe diarrhea was actually more cases were prevented in Malawi where the efficacy was lower. It's the sense that although you get lower efficacy because of the much, much greater disease burden in these poor countries, you have the potential to prevent more severe disease. In terms of the implications of these findings, even, as you said, with this relative partial efficacy. How is it going to change public health? Because ultimately, individual countries, health systems will have to purchase these vaccines. And at the moment, they're available via, via Gavi, aren't they, at a subsidised rate? Presumably, the issue is how long is that subsidy going to continue? The initial results that have come out from, from some countries, and I, I think one of the key studies was from Mexico, where, although not one of the poorest countries, they were an early adopter of the vaccine, and they've shown that their diarrhea mortality has dropped by, uh, by more than sort of 60%. Understanding that not all diarrhea is caused by rotavirus, the sort of estimate is that these vaccines have the potential to prevent about 25% of diarrhea mortality. Now, the big issue, as you say, is one of cost. So in rich countries, for example, when the U.S. first introduced the vaccine, they were paying in the region of about 180 US dollars for a three course of the vaccine. Brazil, when they first introduced it uh, back in 2006, they managed to negotiate a price for a two dose schedule at, at about $15 a course. Whereas what Gavi is offering uh, now the poorest countries is that they can apply to get the vaccine at between uh, 15 to 30 US cents a dose. So that would work out maybe about a uh, dollar a course for the vaccine. So very much less than what probably the market price is. But for Gavi to be able to do that, they, they need to find the, the funds from somewhere. And in fact, they're having, I think, a big fundraiser in October in New York where they 
are trying to raise a, a total of over four billion US dollars to fund their their vaccination programs for the next four years to 2015. And basically, what they are are saying is that um, since sort of Gavi's been providing vaccines over the past 10 years, that they've spent uh, over that period about five billion dollars. And uh, for that five billion dollars, they have estimated they've prevented about five million. Uh, deaths. And so the same sort of figure applies going forward. So with the sort of additional sort of four billion that they're asking for for the next uh, four years, they anticipate that uh, would save an additional uh, four million lives. So that's the big challenge, I think, to get the rich countries or the donor countries to to make that commitment to Gavi, which they have done to some extent. But I think uh, there still seems to be this very big shortfall that uh, that still needs to be met. Well, it's a pleasure talking to you. So that's uh, Professor Tony Nelson on the line from Hong Kong. Many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. Thank you, Richard. Well, many thanks to both contributors this week and to you all for listening. See you next time.